episode 157 with sociobiologist and futurist Rebecca Costa. One of the most riveting and thought-provoking episodes I think we've ever had here on The Optimal Life. And uh, Rebecca sees things around the corner. She is able to analyze through various methods um, what may be coming that's going to disrupt us in society, life, work, etc., and offers mitigating solutions. Uh, incredible. Check her out at RebeccaCosta.com. We've linked it up in the show notes. Uh, please, everybody, continue. Subscribe, rate, review the podcast. The, the ratings are coming in, the reviews are coming in, and the word of mouth is getting out there. I greatly appreciate each and every one of you. And uh, like I said before, this is a really riveting episode. Please share this with anyone that you think may be um, interested in it and maybe some people that could have an impact. This needs to get into decision makers' uh, hands so they could listen to Rebecca, read her uh, publication, and uh, do the right things to avoid more economic duress down the road. Without further ado, everybody, here it is. Please welcome the one and only... Rebecca Costa. The Optimal Life. Uh, so, when you're looking at predictive analytics, it sounds intimidating, but all it really means is taking billions and billions of data points and looking for patterns. And why that is important is because when you discover those patterns and you can verify those patterns um, on a consistent basis, then it allows you to predict with a high degree of accuracy what the next likely outcome or event is going to be. And now with so much data, uh, you know, my second book, On the Verge, was about the fact that we're no longer guessing. We actually know if you have artificial intelligence and you have the correct data, you actually know what the next uh, event is going to be. And the example I use is we launched the GOES satellites about a year and a half ago, and that gave us access to somewhere between three to four times more weather data than ever before. And that three to four times more weather data interprets to many, many, many fold uh, more accuracy in our weather predictions. And, uh, and it wasn't long after that that I was... Uh, getting ready to take my dog for a walk and my phone pinged and said rain in four minutes (laughs) now 10 years ago we could have never imagined that you could predict rain in four minutes and so being the scientist that i am i immediately pulled out my my phone and started timing it and i'll be darned it was pretty close to four minutes it wasn't a heavy rain it was a little drizzle but even so, you know, that, that's the kind of predictions that we're able to make today that were just inconceivable as much as, you know, four or five years ago. So that would be considered the AI-driven predictive analytics that you use? That'd be part that's of that? right. That's yeah. what I use to predict what are likely new events. I don't talk to dead people. I don't use tarot cards. And I can't tell you what stocks to buy. <laughs> But you can tell us what to expect around the corner. You also use tracking venture capital investments. What exact? Can you explain that a little bit? Well, uh, I have a consulting firm, and what we do is look at uh, new provisional patents all around the world. We track where venture capital money is going. You know, they say follow the money. That's a good indicator. Uh, we look at second, third rounds of funding. Uh, we, we track university um, uh, research, 
And we're constantly looking for what is the next disruptor in technology and also in just fundamental science. Where is the money going? Well, it's going in a lot of different directions right now because there's, there's a bit of an explosion of new technologies all the way from uh, energy and, and new uh, forms of energy storage. Of course, the big problem right now isn't producing energy. We can produce energy all day long. We can't store it. Uh, and battery technology hasn't fundamentally changed for uh, a very long time. So there's a lot of interest uh, in that particular uh, area of uh, innovation. So going towards energy, you also review global patents. Uh, uh, reviewing global patents, explain that a little bit. Well, uh, in most countries, people file provisional patents, uh, which is before they can be granted the patent uh, to make sure that, you know, the patent offices are making sure that whatever they're filing for doesn't intrude on or conflict in some way with existing patent law, laws and patents. And so we, we just track those around the world uh, because we want to have our eyes on what is next. That's what's important, is to have our eyes on what's next so that we can begin to make the pivot at the earliest possible point. That's so interesting. And then on top of that, you also study university and lab research. So what, elaborate on that a little bit too, please. Well, of course, sometimes those are really independent of patents because there's not a, a, an understanding of how that research might be used uh, for commercial purposes, uh, mRNA technology that was used to develop the vaccines would be a, a terrific example of that. We were tracking that technology for a very, very long time, and uh, it probably would have taken, you know, another decade or two before the FDA would have uh, approved it for vaccinations had we not had the COVID emergency. So, um, so it's interesting that you can see university research on kind of a slow burn, uh, and 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 it's uh, and even in in uh, pharma labs, you can see that there's a lot of money being put into a particular area of research, and then all of a sudden a crisis like COVID can happen, and you know the the research is ready to be born. So. Are you combining all of these different things, the AI-driven predictive analytics with capital investments, reviewing patents, studying lab and university research? Are you combining all of these things in your analyses, or is it sometimes just more narrowly tailored to one versus the other? No, we combine all of that. We're looking, you know, we're looking toward the future. We want to know what the next disruption is. We want to lo look at what the next triggering event is. Um, I don't think people quite understand how accurate those models can be. You know, in the 19, I, I think it was like 1980 something, I can't remember, but the exact date, there was a group that was starting to use AI and predictive analytics, and they predicted the Arab Spring, the month of the Arab Spring, uh, a year and a half before it occurred. Uh, and, and again, they were looking at many, many, many factors, economic factors, political factors, you know, um, and things that you wouldn't even imagine mattered. Uh, the fluctuation of currencies, as an example. Um, and they were taking all of these factors, thousands of them, 
And they said, there's going to be a big disruptive event. And they even called the month and the year. Now, of course, once the Arab Spring happened, the CIA and FBI and everybody was all over them, right? And now they're fundamentally, that, that organization's group, that, that group now is fundamentally working for governments all over the world to try to predict where the next political disruption is. My interest is more in the science and technology area in order to help corporations and governments understand what the next likely disruption will be in industry. And one of those disruptions, I believe, or one of them that's near and dear to your heart, you've come out with a list of four practical measures that the government, I assume the U.S. government, can act on today to head off further economic uh, duress caused by the pandemic. So I think that this is one of your main areas, and maybe there's a few others, but let's get into this one um, because, of course, 2020 was a devastating year for so many people, and we're coming out of it, and there's these stimulus checks and programs, and obviously that you're very familiar with. So let's go through it, and if you would, explain to us what your concerns are looking down the road. Well, it's interesting. Most of my predictions are are based on, you know, three, five, twenty, a hundred, a thousand years out. And it was very unusual for me to be asked, well, that's fine, but we're in an emergency situation. You know, tell us what you predict, you know, one month and, you know, six months out as a result of the economic downturn that the virus has caused. And, uh, and so I took a moment, and there were really four things that we could be doing that government leaders could be doing immediately to head off a piling on, a very dangerous economic piling on to those who have been most affected. What, the first one is an obvious one, and that is that unemployment benefits are taxable. So people who were suddenly out of a job through no fault of their own, you know, they were, they were good performers, good workers, and suddenly they didn't have a job and couldn't get a job and were ordered to stay at home. They're about ready to face a tax bill, not only for um, their unemployment benefits, but many for stimulus checks. This would be a very easy uh, move for the government to simply say unemployment benefits are not taxable for 2020 and 2021. That's kind of a no-brainer. The second one is credit bureaus. We need to put guardrails. Rebecca, let me just just stop you on the first one. I just want to dig into that a little bit. Sure. So people are having to pay taxes, uh, a federal income tax on these checks, uh, unemployment. Yes, that's correct. Uh, Some states have said that unemployment benefits will not be state taxable, but they are federal taxable. And remember... That when we're talking about taxes, if you don't pay, if you're unable to pay those taxes, it opens the door for the IRS to seize your home, uh, tax your future wages. Uh, it creates all kinds of problems with, uh, with, with the IRS that don't go away easily. Well, so yeah. this is a real dangerous situation for many Americans who are barely making it on unemployment. I mean, if you look at what they pay in unemployment, it's impossible to to support yourself on it, let alone set some aside to pay your taxes. So it's a little bit of a deceptive... Unemployment has a deceptive quality to it. It's we're going to help you with unemployment, and then we're going to take some of that money back. 
Right. They're basically and, and they're I basically that's very disheartening for many Americans and it need not happen. Well, they're treating the unemployment check like almost a portion of it like a loan because some of it you have to give back. That's right. And they're not and, and let's not fool ourselves. No one who's on an unemployment involuntarily is going to be able to pay those taxes. No, not at all. And what is an unemployment so, so that's that's a that's a problem we can head off right now and legislators all over the states and in the federal government ought to be acting on that now. Again, remember, I'm a futurist. Uh, there are some problems that need not happen that could be headed off at the pass. And so when I was asked to look at w what's the long tail of the economic shutdown, what I was concerned with is what problems can we avoid? Yes, absolutely. Well, like you said, all this is doing is delaying the inevitable where the IRS comes in and, and you know, puts freezes on your bank accounts, uh, liens on your homes, on your physical property, on your personal yes, belongings. Yes, uh, lien, liens on your future wages. I mean, these, right. these, are, these are consequences that nobody should suffer who's on unemployment right now. Let's go to the second one, though. If you think that's, that's a piling on effect, uh, we need to put in guardrails around what credit bureaus can do. You know, people who have lost their jobs and are behind in rent and uh, mortgage payments and credit card payments, uh, they're going to be spending years digging out of the effects on their credit. And, and, and when we talk about credit, we're not just talking about your ability to buy a house or get a loan, a student loan or those kinds of things. We're also talking about employers who check your credit scores before they hire. So... It, it, it takes years to fix your credit scores and so many Americans are going to be digging out for many many years so it would be very good to be able to go back to maybe March or February of last year and put a limit on how much credit bureaus are allowed to decrease people's scores who have been impacted by the, the uh, economic shutdown. More importantly, there are a lot of people listening to your program right now who do not know that in the small print of your credit card uh, um, agreement, uh, for all credit cards, this is true, when your credit score, your FICO score changes, they are allowed to increase your interest rate. And the highest interest rate I found was in the Midwest, 89% on a credit card. There is no limit to what credit cards can charge in terms of interest. So it's a free game as soon as your credit score changes, they can increase that to whatever they want to. Again, we need guardrails on that so that so that there, this piling on effect of, the, of not being able to pay your taxes and opening up the door for IRS consequences, for your credit score going down and having to dig out of that for many, many, many years for, uh, for credit card companies to start increasing interest rates and piling on. You can see what happens to the average American. Well, and then the foreclosures too. What would, what would the foreclosure and the financial uh, market crisis in real estate, what, what could that lead to? Well, here, here again, we're standing on the precipice of what caused the subprime mortgage uh, fiasco. Uh, what what really was the engine behind the subprime mortgage uh, catastrophe that affected global economic markets was the fact that banks began foreclosing one after another, took back those assets, and then cut them in, in, in by 50% and flooded the market with cheap real estate. 
uh, they created their own disaster by doing so. There's a, there was a very simple solution then, and it applies now. We can avoid all of that, all of that repeat of a subprime collapse and flooding the real estate market with, with, uh, with foreclosed properties. And that is simply to rewrite mortgages to extend them out two, three, four years so that missed payments can be made up on the back end. You take a 30-year loan, you rewrite it for 33 years or 35 years. When I was a young girl growing up in Japan, and, and this is actually quite popular in the Orient, my grandmother had a 99-year mortgage, and it was assumable by our family because they wanted our, that asset to be uh, kept in the family. So there's nothing sacred about a 30-year loan. There's no reason that the, uh, go the government can't move to make it possible. And again, put guardrails in so that uh, uh, mortgage providers cannot take advantage and be in enact predatory in a way of adding fees. Like we're going to add a really fat fee if you have to rewrite your your mortgage to you know 33 years or 35 years. Another thing that this does is it it puts a kibosh on on uh, uh, evictions for landlords. Because if the landlords know that they can make up that rent on the back end, then they can have rent forgiveness and hit a reset button for their tenants who may be as much as six or 10 months behind, but because of uh, moratoriums on evictions, as soon as you lift those moratoriums, they have to kick everybody out. Right. Well, what they're saying, uh, they're basically- so, so this helps everybody. It helps homeowners and it helps renters. If we can just simply rewrite current mortgage uh, contracts without uh, any additional fees or penalties out for longer durations of time so that missed payments can be made up on the back end and everybody hits reset. Well, a real life example of what you're talking about is anyone that hasn't paid their mortgage in uh, 12 months, let's say, and let's say they're paying $1,500 a month. All of a sudden, when that moratorium expires, the government's or the the bank's going to expect a fifteen thousand dollar or even more, maybe eighteen thousand no dollar check. Correct? No one can pay that. That that is that is living in a fantasy, and and it creates a terrible real estate problem. Yeah, I think your idea of your thirty-two to thirty-five year uh, term loan is brilliant. Absolutely it's, brilliant. It, it, the banks will have to take back property that they don't want to take back. We won't see this the cheap property flooding the market. Their asset sheets won't be affected like they were in the subprime mortgage. And everybody doesn't have to make up back payments. They'll make them up on the end of the loan. This was a very simple, elegant solution for the subprime mortgage fiasco. And if we don't act right now to make that possible and to put guardrails on fees, so that people don't get gouged for rewriting uh, and are not taken advantage of, uh, I believe that this solution could head off any real estate catastrophe at all. Number three, rain in credit bureaus. Well, we talked about the credit bureaus and, and how people are going to be digging out. The fourth item is the, the PPP lines of credit. Businesses cannot run on maybe... Uh, possibly we might get some money and might get some relief. Maybe possibly we'll be qualified. Maybe possibly it'll be X amount. Businesses don't run that way. 
small businesses need to have control over their destiny. And so these one-time lump sums or two-time lump sums, PPPs, are not helping businesses get back on track. What needs to happen is if the government really understood how businesses plan and how they operate, they would understand that a government-insured line of credit would put businesses back in control. They could borrow as much as they needed or borrow none at all. But that's what they need. They need a line of credit, not these lump sum, you know, maybe forgivable loans. Yeah, because what you're saying is is that the the small business owner, while he thinks maybe he can get the entire loan forgiven, there's no guarantee based upon the metrics that are being used. That's right. You, you, they don't know how much they're going to get. They don't know when they're going to get it. They don't know if it will be forgiven or not. Um, this is no way to run a business. Back to the credit bureau thing too, though, because I know you did talk about it, but you also suggest like you know changing the algorithms. I think uh, changing the the way that they're viewed, maybe making an asterisk of twenty twenty, maybe into twenty twenty one. Correct. I know you talked about it, but it's almost like the pandemic credit versus everyday credit. That's right. I mean, there has to be some kind of allowance made for the pandemic by credit bureaus, and they're not acting to do that now. The reason is because it's not really in any financial institution's benefit for the credit bureaus not to ding your credit. When your credit drops, there is a financial incentive for your credit to drop. And that is that that credit, everyone from credit cards to lenders can charge higher interest rates. It becomes more profitable to them. Well, that 89% so is insane. We have a lot of people that are suddenly not only going to be having poor credit and become disqualified for jobs, for loans, for many, many things, uh, for many, many years to come, but will also be paying much more for the credit they need. Well, that 89% thing that you mentioned was absolutely astonishing. Just for anyone that, just to put that in layman's terms, if you put $1,000 on a credit card, the credit card company is going to expect $890 back annually. I mean, that's... Uh, that's that is correct. And there is no, just so people know, there is no top limit. There used to be usury laws, which we no longer have and we desperately need to protect the, the person on the street. We do not have usury laws anymore. And as a result of that, credit card companies can charge whatever they wish. Wow, that's that's shocking. So this is your recent publication. What is who's reviewing this? Is this getting into people's hands in government? How, how are you getting how are you getting this message out? Besides this beautiful podcast, of course. Well, I was asked, you know, I, again, I am a futurist that looks three, five, ten, a thousand years out. This is very unusual for me to speak up. Uh, mm. And I am not political. I am very apolitical. I'm a scientist by nature. And, and so, uh, you know, for me to write an article like this was very, very rare that I would say, look, there are many problems that are downstream that are going to harm the vast majority of Americans and small businesses, and they need not happen. And that is the message we have to get out there. We have to get the message that many problems don't need to happen. They could be headed off at the past. And they can be headed off at the past very easily 
very simply, very elegantly, with no trouble at all and no downside. Hey, Rebecca, That's did you move your? Thing. No did, side effects here. Did you move your phone because you got muffled? Uh, no, you... I didn't move my phone. Okay. I, I think Verizon doesn't like me today. Well, maybe, <laughs> maybe somebody's listening to us and they don't like what you're saying. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's the CIA. <laughs> exactly. See, you never, you never know though. Today, right? With all oh, these technologies. No, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a conspiracy type of person. But I will say that many of these problems can be headed off very simply, and and there's no reason not to. There's no ill effect. There, you know, no economist would ever disagree with me that that you know there's some. Uh, hidden reason that we shouldn't act on these things now. We well, need to act on these now. Absolutely. Well, if you don't want history to repeat itself in a negative situation, you started off the conversation by saying this has been going on for thousands or, or even more years. Like We have enough data to know what happens in a specific situation with a specific set of circumstances and do we want to repeat it or do we want to maybe make it different? And that's kind of what you're saying right now let's make it different it doesn't have to be a collapse of 2008 unless we want it to be a collapse that's that's right uh, there is no reason with the knowledge and foresight that we have look you don't have to be a futurist you don't have to be an expert at predictive analytics to know what i am saying is true right anyone listening right now goes there's a ring of truth to what she is saying there is a logic to what she is saying, and I'm not a futurist, and I know we should be acting on these things. So, you know, a lot of times, like I said, people put this this uh, uh, label futurist on me, but I don't think you need to be a futurist to see what's coming and, and how to avoid these negative outcomes. If we're serious about helping people, Let's not do things like, I'm going to give you some money, but I'm going to take some back later. And if you can't pay it, I'm going to tax you. And if you can't pay your tax, I'm going to take your house and garnish your wages. I'm going to beat down your credit rating, right, so that you can't get another job, so that you that you pay the highest interest rate that, that any bank will, you know, can, can uh, charge you. And uh, by the way, every now and again, I'm going to throw you a stimulus, but you won't know when it's coming, what it is, if it's forgivable. These are not ways in which to build, to, you know, to allow people to find their way back. Well, you obviously have a lot of credibility because you've got people like Richard Branson and other high-profile people that are giving you testimonials on your website. Uh, how does that come about where you connect with someone like that? I, I really couldn't tell you. I think they got my first book, The Watchman's Rattle, and uh, you know, I was very blessed that uh, that book went to 27 countries and became a bestseller in all of those countries. That is the book that outlines what are the signs that a society's institutions are, are primed to collapse. And, uh, and many people, uh, you know, got that book and read that book and said, this person has made a discovery, a fundamental discovery that we need to pay attention to. I am so energized talking to you, Rebecca. I mean, this is well, just well, incredible I, I stuff. I hope people listening to this podcast will, will you know, uh, send other people to the podcast 
and that more and more people will be able to see that there are four simple things that we can do. We can make unemployment and stimulus uh, benefits not taxable. We can extend mortgage contracts. We can rein in credit bureaus and credit card companies. And we can uh, convert the PPP uh, stimulus one-off payments to lines of credit so that businesses can get control back. I think it's brilliant and beautiful. Shifting gears before we finish off, uh, talk about, let's go back to your more comfortable areas of expertise, as you said, uh, three to five years. What, what are some of the things that you're looking at out three to five years that might be disruptive and that we should be keeping an eye on? Well, the most important thing, I think, is how fast we've been able to move on mRNA technology. Um, this will be shocking to many people, but... There's a new uh, approach to cancer, to how cancers operate. And we feel that cancers have many characteristics similar to how viruses uh, operate and how they mutate. The reason that chemotherapy doesn't work for very long is because the cancer figures out what the poison is and mutates itself so that it won't accept that poison, which is why when you undergo chemotherapy, you might undergo chemotherapy for a period of time, it doesn't work, so then they switch you to another type, and they switch you to another type. It's because the cancer cells are smart, and they figure out they're being poisoned, and the purpose of every disease and every virus is it wants to live. You know, it's back to Dar- the, 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 what Darwin said, you know, we, 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 every living organism, even if it's a virus, wants to survive that is its primary mission Mm. and so what we're going to find is this same mrna technology is going to be used to be able to teach ourselves what kinds of uh adverse diseases and um uh viruses um that to look out for and to immunize against and so we're going to see a whole plethora of immunization possibilities. Now, we don't know what the limit is to how much our cells want to learn. There may be a point at which they say, hey, that's too much. That's too much education. Wow. <laughs> and, and, we, you know, and we may see some later long-term effects of uh, you know, hyperimmunity, but, but we're going to see that this allowed a breakthrough in vaccinating against a plethora of diseases, including cancers. So you are foreseeing vaccinations, immunizations that are trying to basically educate our good cells to fend off these mutations and these these bad cells, these bad viruses. Yes. It's a yes. it's a game. It's we, a game of cat and mouse. We will be able to teach ourselves to look out for cancers and to immunize our systems against cancer. Wow, that's incredible. A, a game of cat and mouse between our, our cells internally. Um, that sound, And that's in a short period of time, three to five years. What about looking out at your 20-year? What, what do you see? Well, obviously, we will be colonizing the moon as a, uh, as a way station to get to other planets. Uh, and we will learn more and more about other planets and, and their ability to be hospitable to, uh, to human life thousand years a thousand years will be on many planets how many planets are there 
Uh, who knows? I learned in school, my very fine mother just served us nine, whatever that was. But I think we're realizing there's a lot more than, than what we think there are. Oh, we, we, aren't even, we aren't even at the beginning of understanding how vast the universe is. Do you think we're the only ones here in this entire universe, or is there other life somewhere oh, else? Absolutely not. There's life. There's a lot of life other in other places. Yes. Yeah. Yes, but, but bear in mind, what makes us unique is not our science and our technology and our mathematics and our language. Presumably, our science, our math, and our technology, the further we get out into outer space, we're discovering that those laws of physics apply everywhere. Right. right? They're, they're not unique to the Earth. What, what other forms of advanced life would be interested in are what make us uniquely human, not our math and science. Our math and science is the same as their math and science. So, um, and probably rather immature. Uh, what they'll be interested in is our art, our music, our literature, right? That, that, that is what will be unique in the universe. This is fascinating stuff. Rebecca, RebeccaCosta.com. We will uh, link it up here in the show notes. Check it out. You will see. You can read her article um, and see some of her other publications, videos, etc. Uh, I really appreciate your time, and I hope that this gets out to the proper people and proper channels, and they take some of your advice. I really well, appreciate. Well, thank it. you, and thank you for the good work you're doing. Absolutely. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Rebecca. Mm-hmm.